You are listening to the Boss Level Podcast, and I'm your host, Sami Honkonen. My guest today is Rutger Bregman from Holland. He's a historian and an author. His books, Humankind and Utopia for Realists, were both New York Times bestsellers. You might also know him from a viral video of a speech he did in Davos or from an unaired but leaked interview with Fox News that completely pissed off the host, Tucker Carlson. This is one of those discussions that I know I won't forget. It was inspiring and thought-provoking. And that is especially great since this is the season finale. Boss Level will go on a summer break and return roughly in the end of August or early September. Be sure to share this episode and review the podcast. Have fun listening. My friends at Reactor have founded a new company called Minna Learn. It's the same people who are behind the very popular Elements of AI course that teaches the basics of artificial intelligence. They combine online self-study with in-person learning groups to maximize employee training engagement. They've built a new course on Agile, which sums up Reactor's 20 years of Agile experience into one easy-to-grasp course. The authors of this course are Agile coaches with years of experience in consulting organizations in both public and private sectors, spanning multiple domains from education to medicine. The course features real-life examples and best practices gathered from this experience. I personally know most of the people who run this course, and I can tell you, they know their shit. They've created a special exclusive learning group for boss-level listeners. I might join some of the sessions too. Sign up today at minnalearn.com slash boss level to get a 25% discount and to join the exclusive group with other boss level listeners. That's minnalearn.com slash boss level. You can find the link also in the show notes. Rutger, what I'd like to discuss with you is what work life would be like if we built our companies based on a more hopeful view of human nature. But before we get to companies, let's talk about the human nature. So one of the amazing stories that you tell in your book, Humankind, is the case of the real Lord of the Flies. So can you please walk me through the story briefly? Of course, I'd love to. There's a really old theory in Western culture that some scientists call veneer theory. It's the notion that our civilization is just a thin layer, just a thin veneer, and that below that lies raw human nature, that supposedly deep down people are fundamentally selfish, or even worse than that, maybe we're even beasts or monsters. And that, you know, it just takes small change in circumstances for the beast to come out. Now, this theory comes back again and again and again in our culture. So you can find it in Greek philosophy, in Orthodox Christianity, among the Enlightenment philosophers. It's at the heart of capitalism, I'd argue, the notion that people are just selfish. Um, and uh, there's this really, really famous novel that also advocated this view. It was published in uh, the 50s in uh, the UK, and it's called Lord of the Flies. It's the story of a bunch of kids uh, from a boarding school who are in an airplane crash. 
and they uh, crash in the sea and then they wash up on this island, an uninhabited island. And in the novel, they try to establish this democracy of sorts, but pretty quickly things get out of hand and the kids reveal who they really are, right? So <laughs> they turn into savages, obviously. Yes, obviously. Um, at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead and you know they've really turned into uh, monsters. And so the message of the novel is, I think, pretty simple. Um, this is what happens once the adults are out of the room. And this is why we need hierarchy. This is why we need yeah. discipline. This is why we need the managers to be in charge, right? The serious people to be in charge. Because if you give people freedom, that's what you get. So at the, at the root of humanity is evil. Yes, yes. <laughs> I guess that's, that's the basic message of these kind yeah. of stories that, that are being repeated over and over and over again. So Lord of the Flies became one of the most influential novels of the 20th century. Tens of millions of children were <laughs> and are still sort of forced to read it. It's subject it's, to it. <laughs> yeah, it's especially influential in the US and in the UK, yeah. but also in other places. When I started writing my book, Humankind, which is about this simple but quite radical idea that human beings are pretty decent, basically, <laughs> I knew it was I would a have breaking idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, if you really think it through, the consequences are quite revolutionary, but we'll talk about it later. Um, I knew that I would have to write something about Lord of the Flies, right? Because so many people. Yeah. yeah, but what about Lord of the Flies? Don't you believe that, then? So I thought, has it ever happened? Yeah. You know, maybe I can find one example in all of world history where real kids shipwrecked on a real island, because that would be, you know, would be interesting to see what would happen. Now yeah. it turns out that um, scientists haven't been able to convince parents to volunteer <laughs> their children to drop them on <laughs> islands and see what would happen. We have a couple of reality shows, but as you know, reality shows have very, very little to do with reality, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so. I thought maybe there's been a natural experiment where just by accident, a couple of kids uh, shipwrecked on an island. And after months of research, I found this one extraordinary example of six kids uh, in the island group Tonga, uh, which is in the Pacific Ocean, who were, well, bored with school. They didn't like school. They didn't like the school meals. And they thought, let's go on an adventure. They borrowed, <laughs> in their words, uh, a boat uh, from a local fisherman they had a plan to go to New Zealand uh, or something like that. Quite ambitious. Uh, and already the first night, they ended up in a storm. So their, their boat was pretty much destroyed. And they drifted for eight days without food, without water. Somehow managed to survive. And then so they saw this uninhabited island called Ata, which is basically a volcanic island, a rock that sticks out in the middle of the ocean. Somehow they managed to survive on this island, not for a week not for a month, but for more than a year, for 15 months in total. And when they were rescued, or maybe I should say found, by an Australian captain, they were doing fine. You know, They were bored shitless, of course, but they were in really good health. They had established sort of a mini civilization. They had their own badminton court, and they had created their own gym with you know, curious weights. Um, they had their own little farm, uh, they were making music, they were making art, um, they had stayed friends. And it's a beautiful example of what modern anthropologists and biologists today call survival of the friendliest. Uh, so 
I recognize, of course, that this is just a story, but it tells us something be- deeper about human nature. And that's why I wanted to kick off the book with that story. I managed to find these boys. They're not boys anymore, obviously. They're now 70 years old. And they had never told their story before, only to small local newspapers, but it wasn't famous at all. And actually, they were themselves wondering why <laughs> it wasn't a Hollywood movie yet. But luckily, now that's going to happen. So <laughs> Really? really? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so I'm really glad I played some role in, in, in you know, giving this story the attention that it deserves. Because it's it's really extraordinary. It's the only real Lord of the Flies that we that we know of. So they didn't start killing each other, but they actually started doing art and music and just generally getting along with each other. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. They 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 stayed friends their whole life, and and yeah. that's that's really what this whole story is about about the power of friendship. Yeah. Uh, in general, we tend to talk about human nature as something evil uh, that needs to be kept in check by law or by force, or otherwise chaos would ensue. Mm-hmm. And I guess what you're arguing is that this view is actually incorrect. And most often, humans are actually friendly, cooperative, and, well, kind. Uh, exactly. would, would, this be, would, would this be a good summary of your message? I think we need to move towards a more realistic view of human nature. And that doesn't mean that humans are angels or anything like that. Clearly we're not, right? But if you ask a very simple question, like why have we conquered the globe? Why not the Neanderthals? Why not the chimpanzees? What makes us special? What distinguishes us from other animals in the animal kingdom? It is this this capacity to work together, right? To, To survive because of our connections to one another. Um, so I've got one chapter in the book about these new insights from evolutionary anthropology, where they've coined this this concept of of survival of the friendliest. Yeah. And what they're now arguing is that, indeed, for millennia, it was the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And if you think about it, it does make sense. Because imagine living in the Ice Age, right? A very tough environment. You're a nomadic and togatherer. We, you know, as a species, we weren't nomadic and togetherers for the biggest part of our history. We've been around for 300,000 years. And what we call civilization is a very recent invention of the last 10,000 years. Um, so we were nomadic and togetherers for the biggest part of our history. And if we wanted to survive, we needed friends. Right? If you weren't connected to other members of your species, if you were alone, well, that was very dangerous. There's a reason why loneliness is very bad for your health. You know, it's similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's because your body knows that you need other people around you to take care of you when things uh, don't go as well as you wish. So it's really interesting to study the political system of the systems of these nomadic hunter-gatherers. Uh, what you'll see is that they're quite egalitarian. The, the, the kind of leadership that's practiced there, we could talk about that, is really interesting as well. So humbleness is an absolute prerequisite. Narcissism is very dangerous. So if you were a narcissist, you could easily be cast out of the group and then you're alone. And what happens if you're alone? Well, you die. <laughs> yep. So that is, that is really striking. Uh, and you can still see the evidence for this phenomenon of survival of the friendliest in our own bodies today. So one of the most extraordinary facts about humans is that we are the only animal in the whole animal kingdom with the ability to blush, right? We involuntarily give away our feelings to other members of our species in order to 
establish trust, right? Which is, which is strange. If we're really so nasty, right, then why do we blush? Mm. It doesn't make sense, right? If you're enjoying this discussion, you might be interested to know that Rutger will be speaking in Helsinki in September. Nordic Business Forum, the leading business conference in Europe, finally returns to Helsinki after the COVID years. Rutger Breckman will get up on stage along with other brilliant experts, such as Yuval Noah Harari and Amy Edmondson. The conference will bring together 7,000 attendees from over 50 countries. This year's theme is future-focused leadership, so join Nordic Business Forum if you want to learn how to build, develop, and lead future-proof organizations. Go to nbforum.com. Let's take this discussion into the context of companies and organizations. There are several ways in which our negative view of human nature shows in our organizations. And I think one of them is, is a lack of trust. So because we lack trust in people, we spend enormous amounts of time building mm -hmm. controls that prevent abuse. What are your thoughts on this? I think you're spot on. So if we go back to this veneer theory, right? The notion yeah. that people are fundamentally selfish. What does that mean? If it's true, then we need kings and queens. We need princes and princesses. We need CEOs and managers. We need people at the top to be in charge. Yeah. So if you think about the traditional organization, you know, which is a little bit of a pyramid, it's, it's very much grounded in veneer theory, right? If you can't trust other people, you need them, right? You need those at the top to be in charge. If we can actually trust others, if it is true that most people are not angels, but pretty decent, then the question is, do we still need all those people at the top, all these elites, the managers, the CEOs, et cetera, to be in charge, right? And this is, I think, one of the reasons why those who've advocated a more hopeful view of human nature have often been considered very dangerous and radical because the implication, of course, is quite revolutionary, right? And in my book, I give a couple of examples of indeed the, the revolutionary implications, what you can start to do, how you can shape your institutions once you move towards a more hopeful and more realistic view of human nature. And in some cases, indeed, it means that you as a manager, <laughs> you lose your job, right? Yeah, yeah. You have to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, another weird pattern that I've seen a lot of is, is that in organizations, like if you start a new company, you start with, from a position of zero trust and you have to earn trust within that organization. Mm -hmm. and, and what if it's the other way around that initially when people enter the company they've come through a recruiting process and we should trust them mm -hmm. like like from the start mm -hmm. and it's the other way you can lose trust if you misbehave or do something stupid but like when we start at the company we would have trust and simply this i think would have significant impacts on like how people like what what our workplaces are like if we yeah. start with a fundamental assumption of trust. I agree, I agree. You know, at the end of the book, I, I tell this story of professional con artists. Uh, and, and these people exist, right? They're yeah. maybe sociopaths or psychopaths, uh, but they abuse our inclination to trust one another uh, to rip us off, right? Yeah. It has happened to me once. And I remember feeling quite ashamed back then, right? This is the natural response. 
yeah. uh, that we feel ashamed. We feel stupid, right? We were like, oh, we had a naive view of, of humanity and, and, and others around us. It's only when I started working on this book that I started to realize that actually this is the way I want to live my life. Okay, I am going to be conned a couple of times in my life, you know, but that is the price I am willing to pay for a whole life where I can trust most of the people around yeah. me pretty much all the time. And, and, and this is just collateral damage. You know? It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen a couple of times. Um, so sometimes I ask audiences, like, who's never been conned? I, and, and only like a couple of, I would say like 4 or 5% of the audience raises, raises their hand. And I always say, you got to see a therapist, right? Yeah. <laughs> Your basic attitude towards life is not trusting enough. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's actually like, that's also something that you can basically turn around. So if we think about this in the context of organizations, and let's say that, that we have an organization uh, where we trust people a lot, uh, and then someone abuses that trust. And you can think about it from the viewpoint that like that's embarrassing for the company, that they trusted someone and then someone abused that trust, that that's like mm -hmm. that's poor leadership or poor management from the company. Mm -hmm. But you can also take another view that like that company trusted someone and someone abused that trust. And mm -hmm. that is really embarrassing. And mm -hmm. that is something that you like that individual should be really embarrassed about their behavior. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's one really important way of looking at it. Also, the same idea that you're talking about that if so, if we trust the people in our organization and they abuse us, they're the ones that need to be embarrassed in that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, not yeah, yeah. our company. Yeah. But there's something else going on here at the same time, which is that what we assume in others is what we get out of them. If you think that people are going to abuse the system, then you start treating them that way, and you're going to get the kind of behavior that your theory presupposes. So your view of human nature is often a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. And this happens so often in organizations and you know, with government policy as well. So if you look at the modern welfare state, for example, um, I don't know how it is in Finland, but what, what's happened in many countries is that over the decades, people had to start prove over and over again that they're sick enough, that they're depressed enough, that they're a really hopeless case who will never do anything uh, in their life. You know, and that they'll surely won't abuse the system, so they have to fill in a lot of forms and get, go through a lot of interviews, and then maybe at the end of the day, we'll give them a small allowance. But what kind of people come out of that process, right? Are they energized? Are they entrepreneurial? No, of course not. No. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, in my career, I've I've spent a lot of time writing about basic income, um, no. which is also all about trust, right? Let's just give everyone some venture capital, something to experiment with so that you can start your own company, move to a new job, etc. But it is all about trust. And by definition, if you start trusting people, sometimes that trust will be abused. Yeah. But it's just, in the end, it's just a numbers game. Do you want to write your laws and procedures and rules for the 95% or for the 5%? 
Yeah. That's that's the question. Yeah, and actually, I mean, if you think about it, great businesses are built on this assumption that most people are decent and some of them are not, and we can we can rely on that. Like credit cards are based on this idea that there's a there's a number of people who will steal mm-hmm. products by stealing credit cards, and then the credit card company will pay for that, and the individual mm-hmm. holding that card will not pay for it. Mm-hmm. And the com- the whole business model is based on the fact that there's still very little fraud uh, in comparison to the the big picture and and the the full volume of transactions that go through the system and yes, they're exactly. like you're you're kind of you're trying to minimize the amount of fraud but you also at the same time you accept that you're never going to get to zero and that is completely fine because it's yeah. still it is a very profitable system regardless yeah 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 and it's just extraordinary to see what can happen to people once they receive this kind of trust so in the book i have this one story of i think probably the most amazing healthcare organization of europe and maybe even the world uh, it's based here well, in the Netherlands. Uh, yes, Bitsog, of <laughs> course. Yeah. So it was it was founded by Jos de Bloch, who's now become a good friend of mine. And um, he started in 2006 with just two teams of around 20 nurses, um, two self-directed teams. And at the time, what he was doing was basically illegal in the Netherlands. So he said, "Look, I'm going to just I'm I'm going to provide just one product." And uh, they had tried to int- introduce market forces, as they call it, in Dutch healthcare. So whenever you did like one single thing, like, I don't know, put someone's socks on, you know, you ha- would have to register yeah. that. And that would be like, done. okay, yeah. like three euros, sock is on, three euros. The next sock, the, the other sock is on as well, right? So it was, and this was a way to introduce market forces. It's always interesting that, in the public sector, whenever they try to in- introduce market forces, you, you get these huge bureaucracies. Um, but anyway, he he didn't want to do that, which was illegal at the time, but he did it anyway. And 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 he said, "Look, I'm just going to give people one product, deliver one product, which I call care. That's what we're going to do." Um, and so he started building this organization that now has fifteen thousand employees. And there are experts from around the globe who come to Enschede, which is in the east of the Netherlands. It's a very ugly place. Uh, don't tell my wife I said that. She, <laughs> she was born there. But, <laughs> um, and, and, and they go there to, to his uh, pretty ugly office, uh, where his really ugly car is parked, <laughs> uh, to talk to this guy who talks in very simple terms about how he did it. And it's all about trust. He yeah. says, look, I'm not the expert. I believe that if you see your employees as the experts and if you trust them to make their own decisions and, and let them basically build their own democracy of sorts, right? Um, so it's all self-directed teams of around 10 to 12 nurses who decide for themselves who they want to hire as colleagues, who um, they uh, what kind of additional education they need, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the striking thing is that they deliver higher quality healthcare according to independent evaluators at a cheaper cost, and they pay their employees higher salaries. Yeah. So it's like win, win, win. Yeah. The existence of Buurtzorg is incredibly painful for you know, all these managers in healthcare in the Netherlands because 
Yeah. Jos de Blok is basically like a walking fuck you. <laughs> Part of my French. <laughs> to them. It's like yeah, I've actually I've actually I, I'm one of those people who went to uh to see Bootsog and oh, I really, really visited really. their headquarters and I actually Jos de Blok has been a, a guest on the podcast. Oh really? I, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. That was that was I interviewed him, I think in Almelo was the awesome. name of the city. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and actually it was like Jost de Blok was actually really friendly and helped like also I took a round. Uh, together with the local nurses to actually like see their work uh, and and actually that's a part of the podcast also where we go on around uh, together with the local nurses we actually went to people's homes awesome so they'd called up front to the people and telling them that there's a, a like some podcast people coming over huh. can we can we come and visit you and and we actually saw the the nurses doing their work and 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 talking about their internal functions and how they like did all the HR and recruiting and and uh, all the salary yeah. Decisions and all, all that. That was really, really interesting and inspiring. He's 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 really caused a revolution in healthcare in the Netherlands yeah. and and also in other domains. Because then, if you if you see it happening, then then you start wondering, could we also do this in schools? Yeah. Right? Could and why we do it in we? other places? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Presumably, we can't just export the blueprint. Surely, there there must be differences. But can't we work with these principles and, and experiment and see how it would work elsewhere? And you know what I what I love the most about uh, Jos de Blok is <laughs> when you first talk to him, it almost sounds like he's your 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 uncle at a bar who's just had four or five beer. Yeah, maybe yeah, I, I get maybe this mean. is a little. But he talks in very simple terms. <laughs> yeah. He's like, management is bullshit. Let's yeah. get rid of these uh, these yeah. people. Let people do their work, so, right? Yeah. He, he's, he's sort of yeah. sometimes sounds like a right wing populist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like when you go to the headquarters, it's not an impressive headquarters. And like I remember Jost Block like showing up in a like leather jacket, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. this doesn't look like the CEO of a company that has fifteen thousand employees. Fifteen hundred no, 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 employees. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's 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 awesome. Yeah, yeah. I love, no fifteen thousand. You were right there. Yeah. One of the key things in being able to build a well-functioning organization is to uh, understand the significant effect that structures have on mm-hmm. people's behavior. So simply put, if you reward individual performance, you can't really expect people to collaborate a lot because you're mm-hmm. incentivizing uh, individual performance. So um, you actually talk about how bullying is a product of the structures that mm-hmm. we've built. So can you talk a little about that? Because I think that has a strong link to, to organizations. I used to think that bullying is just a part of human nature, that it happens everywhere, and that turns out that's not the case at all. Bullying is, is a product of very specific circumstances, very specific institutional circumstances. Sociologists have tried to determine where it happens, and they've come up with this notion of what they call the total institution. So a total institution is a place where you can't get out, right? So you're there pretty much all day. There are strict rules. There is a strict hierarchy. The most obvious example is obviously the prison, right? We know that in these kind of traditional prisons, there's an enormous amount of bullying. Uh, There's this strict hierarchy. And if you're at the bottom of the hierarchy and you can't leave, right? Uh, Same is true for nursing homes. You know, some traditional nursing homes have a lot of bullying as well. Very tragic. But but again, if you think about it, a lot of old people are just stuck there, right? They just have to face the same other other people all the time. And sometimes that can get really, really poisonous. And the third example is obviously traditional schools. 
So if you look at the schools that most resemble a total institution, which is a typical British boarding school, those are the places where you see the most bullying. The important message here is bullying is not some natural phenomenon. It's it's the consequences of the way in which we design our institutions. I, I think it's it's weird to see how in organizations we have these these structures that we have put in place. And and it's kind of when you look at them, it is fairly obvious like what the result will be if you have policies like this in place. But still, we seem to be completely oblivious. Like we 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 look at the results that we're getting, and we're like we're talking about how it's it's in the human nature and how how like how our employees are so poor and so on, and we don't link it back to the structures and the policies and the and the ways that our organizations operate and we mm-hmm. don't we don't try to change them we simply try to change the people or something yeah, and, yeah and we don't yeah, look yeah. at like how yeah. it's it's us it's the way that we've built the structures around the company in general i would sum up my life philosophy as be a little bit softer in others you know be more trusting of others but be harder on yourself and that would be also my message for our the people in management, for example, we may be listening to this podcast. Psychologists have known for a long time that power is an incredibly dangerous drug. Power corrupts. It's one of the most important truths yeah. of psychology. And and I think one way of reinforcing that dynamic in an organization is that you actually isolate the top management from any of the feedback that's coming from, from people in the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you essentially make it very hard for anyone to publicly humiliate you in front of the organization because you don't want that to happen it's it's yeah, embarrassing yeah, 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 <laughs> so yeah. uh, and and i think one of the ways that like, you can try to build a company where humbleness is is something that is a value is that you simply create transparency and you create feedback cycles you create an environment where it is okay for you to criticize someone above you and there will not be like dire consequences for you for speaking your mind if i could tell you one story as pretty much everyone these days, I was struggling with phone addiction, right? Twitter, Facebook, etc. And at some point, I realized I don't want this, right? And my wife and I came up with a solution, and it's called parental controls. I deleted all the apps that I was addicted to, yep. including the browser, by the way. I went to my wife and I said, okay, now, now switch on the parental controls and, and put on a code on the phone. And whenever <laughs> I want to install a new app, I have to go to my wife and she can supply uh, yeah. the keys to, <laughs> and to your phone. Yeah. I, also, I also did it for her phone, right? She was addicted to Instagram and some other apps. It's great. You know, my life has, has improved a lot since then. I was recently talking to some guy who's um, really been uh, at the forefront of developing the steward ownership model. Do you know about that? Yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. This idea that you can basically give away your company mm, yeah. to a foundation and put all the shares in a foundation and say, okay, now it's, it's, it's really all about the purpose of yeah. the company and we're going to reinvest the earnings in the purpose and, and not be you know, the victim of, of the shareholders who just want to earn as much money as possible. Now, this is a little bit like tying yourself to the, to the mess. It's easier to do it, by the way, if, you're, if you have a startup. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it's more difficult if you're like 50 years Have old. Have existing and shareholders. <laughs> exactly, and you're very rich. So beginnings are very special. I'm not, I'm, I don't know if there are a lot of startup founders who listen to your podcast, but beginnings are very, very important. I work at a journalism platform called The Correspondent that is now mm. very successful in the Netherlands. And how the organization operates today is, is, is very much a consequence of the ideals when we founded it. So... 
uh, in the constitution of our organization, there are rules like you can only give a small percentage back to the to the shareholders. Most of it has to be reinvested in in journalism. Um, privacy is very important. Equality on the work floor is very important, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so those are one of the ways. It's like parent parental controls for for companies. You see? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and those are the structures that will have a huge impact on how the company will be operated. Uh, yeah, those those are kind of the f- building blocks of the whole thing, and everything yeah. else fr- will emerge from those. And I, I guess you could kind of argue that like one of the structures that is uh, that causes a lot of issues in current organizations we have is the structure of a limited company where we have shareholders that have certain incentives for the company also, and yeah. the, and the the values are the things that they want to drive. It's it comes back to that, of course. Yeah, it comes yeah, back yeah. to like our stock market and and so on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what's really exciting exciting about this, this steward ownership movement is that they're trying to build a different form of capitalism, yeah. right? Often these kind of discussions end up in really boring discussions like, oh, capitalism versus socialism or blah, blah, blah. Or didn't we try that in the Soviet Union and didn't that fail? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really boring in my mind. I mean, we Europeans, we already know compared to say the US that there's a different model possible and that we can keep on experimenting. Of course, the market can be an incredibly powerful force, right? For innovation, for dynamism, etc. And competition is 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 one of the great forces that drives innovation. So surely you don't want to get rid of that. But there are so many ways in which we could redesign capitalism to make it more in line with our human goals, right? And with you know sustainability and human rights and and you name it. And um uh, yeah, I'm very excited about those kind of people who are at the forefront of of experimenting in that way. What should our companies and organizations look like if we had a more hopeful view of human nature? I do not believe in blueprints. I think that's really important to emphasize, right? I do believe that once you update your view of human nature and you start seeing the good <laughs> in others, that in each and every domain, it will lead to you know, some pretty radical institutional changes, right? I wouldn't know what the Burtzorg model would exactly look like in the schooling system, right? And I, I think it can be very dangerous to try and implement a blueprint top-down. Yeah. You know, this, is, this has been a failure in many cases where some managers have heard about, oh, self-directed teams, that's the new thing. Let's implement that. Right, um, and <laughs> without changing their view on human nature, and they like base it st- still on this negative view of human nature. Yeah, as if it's some kind of simple policy tool or a way of of yeah. of cutting costs or something like that. Yeah. Um, if you approach it that way, well, that can be very dangerous. I'd say definitely. But I am pretty sure that once you start looking at human nature in a different way the consequences will be enormous. And the, what, what I only do in the book is to provide a couple of case studies. I've, uh, there's, a, there's a chapter on what they do in Norway where prisoners get an enormous amount of freedom to socialize with the guards, to follow courses, to develop, to develop themselves. And especially for an American audience, you know, they're shocked. They call it the IKEA prison and they're like, what's, <laughs> what's going on here, right? If you look at the statistics, you know, just at the cold numbers, what you see is that Norwegian prisons are the best prisons in the world, even though they don't look like prisons at all. Because the Norwegians keep believing in human potential, yeah, which is yeah. which is really difficult. I, I must emphasize this. It's really, really difficult. There, there, there are people who've committed horrible crimes in there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it takes enormous amount of self-control to say, okay, I'm not going to sink to your level. I'm going to look at this in a more zoomed out, pragmatic way and think, okay, there's going to be a moment where you're going to go back to society, right? We're not going to lock you up forever. And when that happens, we don't want to send a ticking time bomb in society. Yeah. We want to send a productive citizen who's going to find a job, pay his or her taxes, and live a meaningful life. That's yeah. our job. And it's incredibly courageous to to actually try that. And, and the results are, as I said, extraordinary. And by the way, it even saves money. So yeah. you spend yeah. a lot less on healthcare, judicial costs, and blah, blah, blah. So in the long run, this is cheaper as well. And I think like the Norway example is something where like the focus that Norway has with these prisons is on those people going back into the community at some point in their lives. Mm -hmm. Whereas the US model, or if we call it the US model, where you focus more on the punishment, that it is important to punish yeah. these people for their wrongdoings. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's like a balance that Norway has struck in a very different way than the US prison system. Well, this is the whole problem with punishment. In general, punishment doesn't improve people. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. um, maybe it satisfies some primordial feeling, right? That, which is part of human nature. Right? The yearning for vengeance is part of human nature. So this is where we actually need to fight our own yeah. nature. Um, it's, it's not all good, right? <laughs> human nature. We're also one of the cruelest species in the animal kingdom. We can do horrible things. Uh, wars, ethnic cleansing, you name it. Uh, just look at what's going on in Ukraine today. So I, I don't want to give people the impression that I, I only believe the, in the goodness of humanity or something like that. <laughs> I believe in the, the self-fulfilling prophecy. I believe yeah. that what you assume in others is what you get out of them. And that can be incredibly tough, especially when you're talking about people who are not so popular, right? It's fairly easy to be nice to your neighbors. It's much more difficult to treat the stranger or the criminal or you know, the people who are much poor or the, the homeless to treat them with kindness, right? That is where it becomes the most powerful. Agreed. That's awesome. Yeah, that just felt like a, such a strong thought that <laughs> I kind of paused there. That was really good. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. This whole season has been produced in cooperation with Jakso Media. A huge thank you to Iiro Sipola, Juuso Lukkari and Olli Sulopuisto. It's been a pleasure and a privilege working with you. Listeners interested in podcast production services, go check out jaksomedia.fi. That's it. We've reached the end of this episode and the end of this season. Have a great summer, everyone, and tune in again in a few months. Bye.